This is a Triple J podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack podcast. Keeping a secret is never easy. What if your secret, though, was that you were transitioning? You were a trans person and you were going through this huge moment in your life. And you were keeping that secret from one of the world's most feared and brutal regimes, the Taliban. We're about to get to this incredible story of an Australian filmmaker. Get comfy for this long chat. You're not going to want to miss it. Also coming up, breaking news came out a bit earlier. Reports of banging sounds being detected by Coast Guard aircraft looking for that missing submersible near the Titanic wreck. We've got a former Navy official on who's known around the world for his expertise on this stuff. So we'll find out what's going on. Stay listening for that. Hack. Reinforcing again and again to the Taliban unit that I'm a woman. On Triple J. You know, it's hard for anyone outside of the trans community to fully understand what transitioning is like. Hormone therapy, surgery, all the physical changes and the mental journey as well. So imagine going through all of that under the most conservative and feared regime in the world in Afghanistan. And on top of that, you're not hiding from the Taliban. You're actually living with them. Yeah, the Taliban a group known worldwide for its human rights abuses. This is the situation that one Australian filmmaker found himself in. Jordan Bryan was fully risking his life. The Taliban fighters that he was filming for a documentary had no idea that he was transitioning and months earlier had been a woman. Jordan's made an incredible film about this journey. It's called Transition, which is an interesting title because it's two-pronged. It describes how at the same time Jordan was transitioning into the best version of himself, the country of Afghanistan was transitioning into the worst version of itself under the Taliban. Look, I'm so glad to say that he's with me right now. Jordan Bryan, welcome to Hack. Thanks, mate. That was a hell of an intro. How hard was it to decide to make this film? Because I imagine you were probably a bit conflicted when you were deciding whether or not you would put it together, how you would put it together. What was that process like? Yeah, I mean, I had started filming the beginning of my transition many, many months before the Taliban took over Afghanistan because we didn't know that they were going to take over, right? So I was living my life starting my transition, started to do some filming, and then the Taliban took over and it was the most terrifying and overwhelming thing I've ever experienced in my life. Obviously nothing compared to what Afghans were going through, but still. There was one point along the way where I did consider stopping filming because the ethical dilemma that I was going through with the relationship that I was building with this Taliban unit was, um, I mean, I lost so many nights of sleep over this ethical dilemma, which is, one, how the hell can we be building these really intimate relationships with these Talibs? We hate Talibs, they're awful. But no, we like these guys. No, we hate them. No, we like them. We hate them. We like them. So that was really conflicting. And then it was one thing to not tell them that I was trans. I mean, I couldn't have told them it wouldn't have been safe. But then the dilemma that I was having around making a film about that and not telling them. I mean, we told them that we were making a film about my personal life, but we left out the trans bit. So then I really was like, God, is this ethical to make this film without revealing to them that it's largely a film about me being trans? I want to take people back a bit, give them an idea of how you, a country kid from Narandra in regional New South Wales, 
ends up working in Afghanistan and then embedded with this Taliban unit. Like, how did that happen? Why were you there? Yeah, I mean, I ask myself the same question every day. How did I go from being a scrubby kid on a dairy farm to living with the Taliban unit while I'm transitioning? I'd been living in Jordan and then I got deported from Jordan. I ended up working on a project in Tajikistan, uh, which borders Afghanistan. And then I realised that Afghanistan was just across the border and I was like, oh my God, I want to go. What a fascinating place. And so I arrived to Afghanistan with no visa and it was a whole shamozzle, but then To cut a long story short, I ended up being the first person to receive a visa on arrival in Afghanistan. I believe that this kind of serendipitous sequence of events, it was like, this sounds really corny, but it was destiny for me to end up in Afghanistan. So on the visa, were you listed as a woman? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But this is six years ago. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, the first couple of months I was in Afghanistan, I was hijabi. I was like going and buying burqas and whatnot. But then, I mean, I stopped wearing the, I was just trying to be respectful of the culture, but then my Afghan female friends were like, no, that's ridiculous, take it off. And then six years later, I became a man. So in terms of you getting access to this Taliban unit, I mean, that's extraordinary access that any journalist, filmmaker around the world would struggle with, right? How did you get involved in that situation? How did you find yourself with these Taliban fighters and and why were you there? So after the Taliban had taken over, Teddy, my uh, Afghan filmmaking colleague, and I were driving around the city looking for a story to shoot for the New York Times and uh, we were driving past the previous vice president's mansion and Teddy and I, we went over and we started talking to some of the Talibs and then they gave us a tour of this mansion and I filmed everything. I filed it to the New York Times and it went on to be like one of their most viewed videos. It's on YouTube. It's got like 4 million views or something. Wow. And so from there, we built this relationship with this Taliban unit. And because the commander of that unit is a really savvy guy, he invited us to go with some of his Talibs back down to their village. And then from there, we just kept going and going and then started making a feature film for the New York Times. And what was it like getting to know this Taliban unit? The most terrifying, confusing, enlightening and profound experience I've ever had. Wrestling with the cognitive dissonance that you go through when you're building an intimate relationship with somebody that believes in things that you are fundamentally against is really profound, very challenging. And, you know, like to this day, I'm still in touch with all of the Talibs that we built relationships with in that unit. Wow. So you're messaging them? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I send them photos of my life and and everything. Um, So would you call them friends? You know, I would, but... Friends that stand for a lot of things that I am vehemently against and friends that I could never reveal my true self to. So, you know, yes, I would call them friends, but it would kind of be an uncomfortable admission because at the end of the day, you know, they subscribe to an organisation that is a terrorist organisation. One of my favourite things about the film is that we pose these questions and these ethical dilemmas and we don't answer them because, I mean, I don't have answers to these ethical dilemmas. Is it okay to be friends with people who are in the Taliban? But one thing that I do believe and one reason I was really motivated to make the film is because I think it's really important that we extend our values to people that we don't like. 
You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with Australian filmmaker Jordan Bryan about his experience transitioning while embedded with the Taliban in Afghanistan. It's an incredible story. There's a scene in the film where it's you're in, it's in the morning, you're staying with this Taliban unit, it's in the morning, you're getting dressed and you're doing it really quickly. You're throwing your outfit on and you're doing it quickly because you can't be caught naked, right? Because you're transitioning. And while this is happening, you can hear the sounds of gunshots and it's these Talibs practising firing outside. You can't let anything slip. You can't let some really sensitive piece of information about your identity, your transition get out because all of a sudden you're in the most dangerous situation on earth pretty much. Did you find there were moments where you found that you had let your guards slip a bit? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, being with them and, you know, we would be with them for weeks at a time, sleeping in the same room, sometimes sleeping under the same blanket and the whole time I've got breasts, right? I mean, I'm wearing a binder which would flatten my chest, but but still they were very much there. But it's not only the gender stuff that, that you're so cautious and conscious of, it's also that... You know, part of building a relationship with them was we had to kind of assimilate a little bit to their understanding of the world. So you're also frantically trying not to be too open-minded or too progressive about things. So even though so often they would be saying horrendous things about women and their beliefs about women's role in society, but like there was one particular Talib that I became really quite close with and quite physically intimate with because, you know, men in the East are very physically intimate with each other. It's got nothing, it's not sexual at all. It's just like a, a friendly intimacy. You know, this one time he started wrestling with me and, oh, my God, his, like, body was, like, pressed against my body and, you know, he, like, had his arms around me and, when we like, I was trying to get out of wrestling with him but I couldn't get out of his grip and it was just, oh, my God, I just didn't breathe. I think my heart fell through my feet to the centre of the earth. It's in the film and that moment as well, I wasn't breathing either. Like, you're on the edge of your seat. Do you think these Taliban men, these Talibs, had any idea that there was something maybe a bit different about you? For many of the guys in the village, they've never seen a foreigner. I would have been strange for them irrespective of how I looked. They definitely didn't have any idea that I had been a woman or that I had breasts at the time. They definitely had no inkling of that. If they did, I probably wouldn't be sitting here because if they had any inkling, then they would have investigated, they would have, like you know, forced me to strip down or something, I don't know. What do you think would have realistically happened had they found out? (sighs) You know, I really, I really don't know. Also, like, you know, not, not every Talib is the same, right? It's like a classroom. You've got the bullies, you've got the nice ones, you've got the smart ones, you've got the lazy ones. The ones that I were close to, was close to, were the softer ones that, you know, I, I don't think that they would have had it in them to, to kill me. But there were a couple of other ones that I find really scary and I think that they could have killed me, honestly. This is also in the film, but there's an exchange um, between a villager and a Talib that I really think sums up this whole, this whole story. He's talking to the villager and the villager is, like, accusing me for not having a beard, like, what kind of man are you? And the Talib said that... 
there's more to manhood than having a beard. Manhood comes from within. And I was like, damn, that's incredible. Look at this, Talib. And then a few minutes later, the same Talib said, if he ever heard a woman's voice coming from another room when male guests were around, he'd cut her throat. Wow. This is Huck. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm chatting with Aussie filmmaker Jordan Bryan whose new film Transition is all about his process of gender transition in Afghanistan. Part of that was while he was embedded with a Taliban unit. Jordan, this is a complicated story. People are gathering that, I'm sure. When you're watching the film, it's complicated for you as the viewer as well because there are points that you catch yourself in this uncomfortable feeling. You find yourself laughing or smiling with these Taliban fighters, you see them on a really human level and then you stop and you deep it and you go, hold on, they do awful things. There's going to be a lot of people thinking, why do this? Why platform people known and feared around the world for their disgraceful treatment of people, particularly women and girls? Why do it? Yeah, that's, I mean, that was also a question that we had for ourselves. And very often we were like, damn, are we really, are we doing the right thing here? Should we be making these films? But, you know, At the end of the day, like I said before, I really, one of my core values in my filmmaking is to extend my values to people that I don't like. And I value dialogue and I value diversity, diversity of ideas, diversity of people. I'm always looking into where are my prejudices because prejudices are our blind spots, right? So I'm always looking into my blind spots and trying to create a dialogue with whatever is in that blind spot. So my values as a filmmaker trumped any of the doubts that we had about becoming, you know, the Taliban's PR mouthpieces. And, you know, like the Taliban as an organisation are a terrorist organisation. They've done abhorrent things around Afghanistan. They've killed thousands and thousands of innocent people around the country. They're erasing women from society. They're erasing human rights. But that organisation is made up of lots of different individuals. These Talibs that we built a relationship with, yes, they subscribe to that organisation, but there is hope for them to modernise. Teddy and I had a lot of hope that these Talibs would modernise and they're very young, so they're the next generation of the Taliban. So in engaging with them, you know, not only are we investigating our own prejudices, but they are also being exposed to new ideas So I think like, you know, the process of making the film is we created a dialogue in that microcosm, but then also the film itself will be seen by people around the world and that will be creating a dialogue as well. There are a couple of people who you are with throughout this journey in Afghanistan and your life is in their hands and it shows the real strength of friendship and love and all the rest of it. Can you tell us a bit about Teddy? You know, my mum always says that um, we're only as good as the people around us. And Teddy is a, a beautiful young Afghan man who he's an absolute hopeless romantic. He writes poetry. He talks about how he fell in love with the moon when he was six years old. He's an absolute sweetheart. He is the one who I brokered the access to the Taliban unit with and he's the local. He was the one that was doing the bulk of the of the talking and the relationship building. So he really is the hero of this story. And, you know, he was um, not only having to hide aspects of his own life from the Taliban, the fact that he had worked for the Americans for a while, he had worked for the Afghan Ministry of Defence for a while, um, but also he was having to cover for me as a trans man, right? And he just shouldered all of this responsibility flawlessly 
One other thing that I will say about Teddy that I, I don't think many people in the world can understand, in order to do his job as a filmmaker, for us to go there and spend time and film these Talibs, he had to build relationships with the very people that had destroyed his country and had destroyed his life. Yeah. I cannot imagine how difficult that must have been and he was just absolutely brilliant the whole time. There are a lot of things in this film that are kind of difficult to process and one of them, and you can correct me if I'm getting this wrong, but you kind of describe how in some way you felt more secure in your identity in Afghanistan than you did here in Australia. Like, can you unpack that a bit? What, how, how does that work? Because, you know, I grew up in Narendra back in the, like, late 80s, early 90s, and it was a very different world back then. And, you know, I got bullied and I've still got scars on my back from having rocks thrown at me. And, you know, I've carried around shame my whole life and I've always had these labels that followed me around and I associated those labels with a lot of shame. And so when I went to Afghanistan, I was just anonymous, completely anonymous. I just got to be Jordan and I think that's why I've always felt more comfortable there. Do you know if these Talibs have seen the film are you worried that they are going to see it? No, they haven't. Um, they haven't seen the film, and I, I don't think that they will ever see the film if somebody brings it to their attention because they're not online. They don't have internet. They don't have electricity, so they themselves wouldn't see it. But if somebody in, um, you know, one of their Talib contacts in Kabul or the Taliban leadership finds out about the film, then they may bring it to their attention. And when that happens, I will cross that bridge at that time. I will have that conversation with them, definitely not from within Afghanistan. I will have that conversation outside. Yeah, I don't know what's going to happen there. Is that something that keeps you up at night thinking about how they'll react if they do find out? Absolutely. I have lost so many weeks of sleep over the, over the many months of filming. I've lost so much sleep. But, you know, A... Trans people aren't obliged to tell anyone that they're trans. B, I couldn't have told them because it wouldn't have been safe. C, it was also better for them that they didn't know, right? And if they were to found, find out that I'm trans, nothing would happen to them. They will be embarrassed, I assume, but they won't be in any trouble because they haven't done anything wrong according to Sharia law, right? So I'm not worried about them in that aspect. What I am worried about is them feeling betrayed by by me individually. Why, Jordan, was it important for you to make this film? Like, what was the most important message you could get across to an audience? Yeah, I mean, there were two key motivations. One, I wanted to tell a story about a trans character that is about so much more than him being a trans character, right? Like the human relationships, the ethical dilemmas, the behind the scenes of filmmaking, Afghanistan, there's so much in this film that is beyond just trans-related content. We can do anything. We don't need to be held back by the fact that we're trans. And the second thing was uh, another motivation that I've said a few times, that we have to extend our values to people that we don't like. Jordan, I, I was on the edge of my seat, like I said, for this entire film. Also, the bravery and the confidence to carry this off is mind-blowing, really. It's called Transition. Look it up. 
Jordan Bryan, thanks so much for coming on Hack. Thanks, mate. That was a great interview. Thank you. Hack on Triple J. We've got some messages coming through. Someone says, one of the beautiful things in transition was how the, the humanness of it all. You're amazing, Jordan. Another person saying, where can I watch this? Look, it is hard because it's not... Uh, in cinemas right now. It's being shown at film festivals, like it was at the Sydney Film Festival recently. It's been all over the world, in New York, uh, all over the place. The best thing to do, hopefully it's picked up by a streaming platform or something, but if you go follow Jordan on Instagram, his name's Jordan Bryan, spelt B-R-Y-O-N, He'll have all the updates of where you'll be able to see this film going forward. And there are clips online you can go check out as well. But it is incredible. It's definitely well worth a watch. Hack. They're reporting that the search and rescue team has been hearing banging sounds coming from the ocean. They've been hearing some sound. We may get lucky. On Triple J. You know, when news broke earlier today that the US Coast Guard had detected underwater noises while searching for this missing submersible in the North Atlantic, it felt like anxiety levels went through the roof. Could the five people on board this sub that was diving to the Titanic still be alive? Because there are reports banging noises are being heard in 30-minute intervals. So what does this mean for the search? Does it make it easier for experts to pinpoint this sub's location? Well, let's find out. With us is Frank Owen, a retired Royal Australian Navy official, Submarine Escape and Rescue Project Director. Frank, thank you so much for joining us on Hack. G'day. You're very welcome, man. What, what do we know about these sounds that have been detected? I'm guessing there's not too much information, but what do we know? Well, there's an awful lot you can work out from it. Um, first of all, it, this is standard procedure for all submariners around the world in the Navy, Navy submarines, that if they're stuck in a disabled submarine, um, the search forces will go quiet on the hour and the half hour for three minutes. And during that time, the people inside the submarine should bang the hull wow. and make noises. Wow. And so this is protocol um, that you would be expecting to hear if there were people trapped in a submarine. Yes, that's right. But that would be if it's a naval submarine. Now, it's not often that uh, naval procedures translate across to the tourist industry. Um, but on board this submersible is a retired French Navy commander. His name is uh, Paul-Henri um, Najal, and he is a diver. And the divers are quite involved in submarine rescue. So he would be very aware of the Navy protocols for, for um, helping the search forces to find you. And I would expect that he would then say, this is how the military or the Coast Guard might be looking for us. Let's do things that will help them and give them clues that we're alive. So is there anything else that we can learn from this other than the reports of the sounds themselves? Like, does detecting the sounds make it easier to find the sub? Does it give a more precise area to search? It certainly does. If, if These were detected from a sonoboy, which is a... a, a it's a floating set of hydrophones that are uh, dropped from an aircraft and they transmit their sound. What, whatever they um, hear on the hydrophones gets sent back by radio to the aircraft. So these sonoboys can be laid in a pattern and they give bearings as well. So if you have three or four of them in an area and, and the banging happens on that hour or half hour, they're going to be able to locate, localise at least what it is in terms of latitude and longitude, 
it won't necessarily tell them the depth, but um, I've got some other clues that suggest that um, if you're hearing it, then it's probable that the submarine is in the same water column, the same sort of depth of water um, as the hydrophones. Um, so if it was, if the submarine was sitting on the seabed, it's quite possible that those noises would not be heard except by something that was down at that depth. Right. So this could indicate that it is, it, it's further, uh, you know, it's not on the seabed, it's it's further up in the water. Um, yeah. That's incredible. Can you kind of describe, Frank Owen, what kind of search is happening now? Like, obviously, we've got these surveillance planes, but what's happening underwater? Well, the underwater is is mostly, at the moment, I understand, being performed by um, uh, remotely operated vehicles, which are um, they're like drones. They're, they're like a box that's about three metres cube, um, and it's powered from the surface. It has a, a thick umbilical that goes to the surface where there's generators. It brings um, data back. It sends a power down the umbilical, and it brings data back via fibre optic from its sonar and its um, uh, and and its uh, um, and, and 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 its cameras, um, but vis- visibility is the you don't see underwater very far. So cameras are only really useful when you're very close and you're wanting to really identify something. But these ROVs are quite noisy, and it's very rare for them to be fitted with a passive hydrophone, where they can actually just sit and listen to the noise. So the ROV is not a very useful tool for hearing the banging that might happen. Right, okay. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with uh, you know, submarine expert, former uh, Navy official Frank Owen about this search and the updates that we've heard about reports of banging noises that have been picked up in the search for this submersible in the North Atlantic. Frank, realistically, you know, what kind of chance do you think there is of finding people alive at this point? Well, the, my my confidence in their in their um, being alive has has increased by an order of magnitude since I've heard this news. So I'm very um, I'm very positive that they're alive, very hopeful, uh, much more hopeful than I was. Um, they still face the um, uh, struggle to to maintain their uh, their atmosphere in environment. So they, everybody knows that they have 96 hours of life support. Well, 96 hours is very nominal. It very much depends on how much um, energy they're exerting, how busy they are, um, and therefore how much oxygen they use and how much um, carbon dioxide they generate when they breathe out. Because carbon dioxide is probably the killer. It's the one that will send you to sleep. It's like if you're if you're driving in your car with your with your ventilation on recirc for too long, you don't get enough fresh air and it get, you get drowsy. Um, well, this can happen in a submarine, very much in a submarine. And if that happens in your CO2 levels rise too high, you fall asleep and you actually then don't wake up. So CO2 content is very much an important thing here. Frank, you've been, you know, in this industry for a long time. You've seen, um, I, I imagine, a lot of uh, sticky situations. Have you? Has there been incredible sub rescues in the past that, uh, you know, point to maybe a happy ending to this? They have. There were actually there were two uh, um, submersibles very similar in size to this one. 
One of them was in 1973. Um, that was at that stage the deepest ever rescue, where two um, two people were in a, a free swimming submersible like the um, what a different sort of design, but it's really quite like it, called Pisces 3. And, th and they were inspecting subsea cables off the coast of New of Ireland. And they got tangled up in these um, cables that they were inspecting. And they got some water inside. And they uh, they were able to be, um, there was an intervention from a large remotely operated vehicle. Very early days for that sort of technology, actually, as it was. And they got to the surface and were, and were recovered um, literally bef just before their um, their air supply was going to run out. Wow. And the, one of those fellows was a guy called Roger Chapman, who sadly passed away recently, but he founded a company that now is James Fisher Defence, and they provide the submarine rescue services for Australia. That's incredible. What, um, Yeah, what an incredible story. Um, look, people are going to be uh, on edge, waiting for news, waiting for updates. We do appreciate your insight into this, submarine expert. Uh, Frank Owen, thank you so much for joining us on Hack. No worries. Thanks, Dave. We've got some messages coming through. Someone does say, look, I believe all life is precious. I'm disappointed, though, to hear all the focus on this sub when, you know, a refugee boat sank with 300 people dying off Greece, and that's quickly forgotten. That's from Mo in Melbourne, a really kind of poignant uh, thing to think about ending this episode of Hack. A lot of uh, people talking about the Jordan interview as well. Uh, so thank you for that. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack podcast for now. I'll catch you next time. Hack on Triple Jack.